0: Well, we are in this spring teaching series. We're continuing this series in the life of Moses. Why? Why study Moses? Why even look at the Old Testament? I mean, isn't it it the Old Testament? It's so old, it's so antiquated, it's so outdated, it's so irrelevant, right? No! Hard no! It's extremely relevant. I mean, you think about the situation that they were in at the time. They were wrestling through struggles and trials. How many of you wrestled through struggles and trials? Come on now. They were in their suffering crying out for deliverance. So do we. Nations were going astray and going against other nations. World leaders were puffing themselves up. Does that sound familiar? People in bondage needed rescue, the hopeless needed the hope of a savior, and to see God's hand at work and God's people had forgotten about his covenant love and sovereign power. Hmm. Sounds all too familiar, doesn't it? Maybe even a little personal. Because the more things change, the more they what stay the same. I I can't speak for every campus. I can speak for Cedar Lake. Two weeks ago, we had Week of Prayer, and, and you all submitted prayer requests. Last week, we had like 100 prayer requests at Cedar Lake in our connection cards. And man, you guys are going through some heavy, heavy stuff. And I think that's true for all of us here. You guys are in the thick of it. You are struggling with some deep stuff. This is extremely Relevant to us today. People still need a savior. They still need hope. They still need restoration. They still need rescue in our struggles. Amen. Amen. And so that's why we're studying Moses. So let's let's dig in. Let me give you the recap up to this point. The backstory. God's people, also known as Israel or the Hebrews, were enslaved in Egypt. And so God appointed, he called a man by the name of Moses, who was a Hebrew adopted by Egyptian royalty, to lead his people out of Egypt. Well, Moses tries to take things into his own hands, tries to take matters in his own hands on his strength, and so he's going to be the savior for the people on his own power, and he rises up, and he fails miserably. He kills a dude, an Egyptian taskmaster who's just, laying into a slave, just beating him senseless, kills him, which is a big no-no. So now he's a fugitive of the the law, running for his life, and he flees all the way to Midian. Now Midian is as far from Egypt as New York City is from us. That's a long journey. So he travels all this way. He meets his wife, Zipporah. They get married. He settles down. They have a family. Years pass. He's older now, and he's watching the flocks. He's tending the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro, and As he's doing so, he sees this flickering, he sees this light, and he approaches, and he notices a a bush burning, but not being incinerated. And he realizes this this is the supernatural presence of God. And God speaks to him from this bush, and calls to him and declares his name, I am Yahweh, I am who I am. You're standing on holy ground, and he reveals to Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt to lead my people out of slavery. And Moses says, Yes, God, thank you, yeah, but. Whenever you say, say, yeah, but, to God, that is never a good thing. And how often we do that, yeah, God, but. And he makes excuse after excuse after excuse to the point where he even says, you got the wrong guy, please send someone else. And God says, no, Moses, you're the guy. But what I'll do is I'll have your brother Aaron go with you and he'll be your mouthpiece. And that's where we find ourselves in Exodus 4. Go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 4 on your phones, tablets, or Bibles. Exodus chapter 4, and verse 18 through 23. Now, we are covering three chapters today. So I plan to preach a two-hour sermon. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. Some of you are like, yeah, I believe it. Uh, We're covering a lot. So listen, when you look at historical narrative in Scripture, you have to think of it in terms of scenes, like in a movie. So here's the first scene. Verses 18 through 23. Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he tells him all the amazing things he saw God do. You won't believe God spoke to me. Here's what he did. And he tells him, I have to go back to Egypt. And Jethro says, go. He gives him his blessing. Go in peace. And God reassures Moses, hey, the people who tried to kill you are dead. There's no need to worry. And when God says, don't worry, don't worry. He tells him two things. One, I'm going to enact my sovereign, almighty power through you. And two, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So we get to verses 24 through 26. And Moses is taking his wife Zipporah and his son Gershom. And they're on their way, journeying back to Egypt. So they're in the desert, in the wilderness. They stop for the night to camp. And God seeks to kill Moses. And so Moses goes on. Wait, what? Okay, that can't be right. Didn't God call Moses? Why is he seeking to kill him? Oh, there's so much context here. I wish I had time to elaborate, but it's outside the scope of this message. But suffice to say, Moses was supposed to circumcise his son, Gershom, who's probably in his 30s by now, and he hadn't. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, kids, ask your parents. That should be a fun conversation. (laughs) Adults, if you don't know what circumcision is... I don't want to say Google it. Please don't Google it, but maybe ask your neighbor. That should also be interesting. <laughs> Circumcision is where they would cut off a, a part of the flesh of, the, uh, of a male, and it was a sign of the covenant between God and his chosen people, which was established during the days of Abraham, and Moses had not done that. And apparently, Zipporah, his wife, knew that because she does it. She circumcises the son, and God relents. He spares Moses his life. What in the world is going on here? Well, Moses was disobedient. The Lord could not have Moses holding back something as serious as honoring his covenant. He needed Moses to be all in. He needed his his heart to be fully his, to be an instrument of his glory. Now, remember the key word from last week was the word holy. God is holy, holy, holy. He is unique, He is all together in a characteristic into and of himself. He is pure. He's perfect. He's holy. And through God, he makes us holy. He makes his people holy. We are his holy chosen people. This plays into the Moses narrative a lot, this idea of holiness. So circumcision was a symbol that showed Israel as uniquely set apart by God for God. Now here's our Messiah moment. Remember, when you look at the Old Testament, Moses through the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus in the New. Jesus says that in John chapter 5. Moses points to Jesus. So here's our Jesus moment. Through Jesus, we are set apart by God for God. We are uniquely declared holy. We belong to God as new covenant people also through blood, but not the blood of circumcision, but the blood of his Son. So we look at verses 27 through 31. And Moses meets up with his brother Aaron and he tells them all the amazing things he saw God do and, and that he heard God say. And then they go together to gather the leaders of the people of Israel. And Aaron, on behalf of Moses, tells them all the things that God said to Moses and did before Moses. And Aaron performs miracles before the people. And look at verse 31 of chapter 4. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Remember Exodus chapter 2? God hears our cries. He hears our groanings. He sees our affliction. He sees our sufferings. He knows us. He remembers us. He loves us. How could we not respond with anything but humble worship? I was talking to a staff member last week, and we were talking about how we love when you guys sing at the top of your lungs worship songs. You know, when we're in here, and you're just singing about the truths of Jesus, proclaiming the, the word of Jesus through song as you sing. And whether you raise your hand to express in worship or not, you know, when you have joy on your face, and you're just excited to worship Jesus, to attribute full worth to him, it's, it's beautiful, it's exciting. I love being among God's people worshiping Jesus. But we talked about how the final song in the service, after the sermon, not everybody, but sometimes I see people do this, <sighs> you know, and they're gathering their stuff, right? Like it's a throwaway song. Folks, worship is never a throwaway, ever. God says in his word that they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. May, they, may that never, ever be true of us. So how should we respond? In fact, if anything, in the final song, when we hear truth from God's word, we should be more joyful, more excited. We should respond as the Israelites did in humble worship. So that's what I want to see at the end of this service. We're going to respond in worship. Now we get to chapter five. Now Moses and Aaron, probably brimming with confidence. I mean, they had just appeared before the people. The people believed and worshiped. So first hurdle jumped plan is going great so far. They just have to appear before Pharaoh. Uh Uh-oh. Didn't God say that he would harden Pharaoh's heart? And sure enough, in order to to display his glory and power, God hardens his heart. And so they go before Pharaoh, and they demand that he release the Hebrews, his people, so that they may go worship the Lord. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. hmm yeah, yeah, you know you were thinking it. <laughs> you grew up in church. That's a kid's song. So what was Pharaoh's response? Yahweh. I don't know this Yahweh. Who's this Yahweh? No, no chance. I'm not releasing the people. Oh, big mistake, Pharaoh. Big mistake. He is going over Moses' head, and he is confronting, challenging God head on. Pharaoh is saying, I've never heard of this God. We have so many gods Pharaoh is basically, I am a god. They thought the pharaohs were gods. Why is this god so special? Why should we listen to him? I don't know this god. I don't know Yahweh. Famous last words. Challenge accepted. Oh, you may not know who God is now, pharaoh, but you will. You know, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, God says something along these lines that they may know that I am the Lord, that you may know that I am Yahweh. Now, what is the main reason God set his people free? Have you ever thought about that in Exodus? But Spoiler alert, God does set his people free. Why? Is it to alleviate their suffering? Well, some. Yeah, that's, that is a reason for sure. Is it to lead them into the promised land? Of course. But are those the main reasons? I think not. The main reason God liberated his people from slavery is so that they may know. They, Israel, Egypt, all peoples would know that he is the Lord, that he alone is God. You see, knowledge of God and his glory are inextricably linked. Glory is the outward expression of his holy and awesome character. It's the going public of who he is. And so, God wants people to know him and experience his incredible glory. So, Moses and Aaron are before Pharaoh and they press the issue further. And now, Pharaoh is really getting angry. He responds harshly. Again, remember, his heart is hardened, just like God said. And so, he accuses Moses and Aaron of enabling the people of being lazy. Oh, you're just letting them laze on the job, being free of their burdens of work. You know what? We're not going to gather straw for them anymore as they make bricks. They have to gather their own straw. But they still have to maintain the same quota every day. Now, some of you, I know for a fact, are crazy busy. I mean, your schedule is packed tight. There is no margin in your schedule to add anything. And if your boss or someone comes up to you and says, hey, would you think about doing this thing Something has to slip. Something has to come off your plate. You don't just magically, productivity doesn't magically happen. Something has to be removed. We don't get more hours in the day. Pharaoh is asking for an impossible task. They could not keep up production. It was an unreasonable thing he's asking. He felt like the people were trying to stick it to the man, so now the man is trying to stick it to them. And when they inevitably could not keep up production... The Egyptian slave drivers beat the Hebrew leaders. Life was harsh as a slave, but things got so much harder and the people are seething against Moses and Aaron. Oh, that Moses and Aaron. We believed in them. They should have just shut their mouths. Why did they say anything? They were going to set us free, but things are so much worse because of them. We were told that they would go before Pharaoh and and that Pharaoh would face the almighty, just wrath of God. Now we face the wrath of Pharaoh. Where is God in all this? Shouldn't have believed in them. Shouldn't have got our hopes up. And so we get to chapter 5, verse 20, and these Hebrew leaders seek out Moses and Aaron to confront them. And in verse 21, they basically say, Moses and Aaron, may God judge you for this. We are even more odious. Literally it says, we are a stench in the nostrils of Pharaoh. We're more detestable to Pharaoh. He disliked us before. Now he hates us. So we are facing the brunt of his anger toward you. He's taking it out on us. You might as well have put a sword in his hand to kill us. And Moses responds as all great people of God do in prayer, but a different kind of prayer. This Is how God... God's people respond to adversity. They respond in prayer. But look at his prayer. Look at verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Some translations say, why have you troubled them? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Yikes. These are heavy accusations against God. You know, as a pastor, when I meet with a a couple, a married couple, who's going through difficult times, I'll tell them, do not have an accusatory tone toward your spouse. Don't point fingers. Don't blame shift. That's what we tend to do. And don't say, you did this. You, 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 you. Because what happens when someone tells you, you did this, you did this, what do we do? Walls go up, right? We, We naturally get defensive. And then things just escalate. It doesn't go well. Because, to be honest, everyone has some culpability. We're not perfect. So in a married couple, usually, not always, but usually, neither one is 100% innocent. They both have some culpability in this. But God has no culpability. He's completely innocent. And Moses is blaming him. The people were blaming Moses and Aaron. Now they blame shift. Moses blame shifts to the Lord. It's your fault, God. I thought you heard their cry. I thought you saw their suffering. Where is this deliverance you promised? Where are you? You were supposed to free them from their burdens. You were supposed to lighten the load, but now their burdens are increased. God, where are you? You ever had that thought? You ever get angry at God? Where are you, God? Where are you in all this? you were supposed to be my deliverer. One of the things I love about the Bible is how real and raw it is. Even the most godly men and women in Scripture have faults, and you see them at their lowest points. You see their frayed edges, and I like that because I have frayed edges. So do you. We all hit our lowest points, we hit rock bottom. And so it's real, it's genuine. Moses is angry, he's frustrated with God, he expected immediately positive results but it hasn't happened yet according to his expectations. Douglas Stewart says it this way, God's timing only sometimes coincides with our expectations, and his idea of the hardships we need to go through only sometimes coincides with our idea of how much we can take. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. Things don't always happen according to our expectations. In fact, God rarely operates according to our expectations. And yet we have to remember that God does all things for his glory and for our ultimate good. Not what we define as good, what he knows to be good. But the question remains, is it okay to express anger toward God when things don't turn out as you expect? I say yes, with a caveat, with stipulations. When you look through scripture, we see this in the Bible often, Job Angry with God. Naomi, in the book of Ruth, angry with God. David, Elijah, Peter, so on and so forth. And in these instances, God does not rebuke them for their frustrations. See, God knows your heart. He knows your thoughts better than you do. He knows you better than you do. So be honest, be brutally honest, be genuine. You can express frustration over your lack of understanding. But once you start accusing God, Once you start demeaning his character, now you're on thin ice, so tread lightly. Or to put it this way, frustrations with circumstances is natural, but doubting God's character, that's a slippery slope. When that happens, maybe some of you have done that, maybe some of you are doing that now, when that happens, something is amiss. Do a heart check. Check your heart and sync it up with God's truth. Conform your thinking, your mental pattern to the pattern of God's word. That's called repentance. So God could have incinerated Moses for his insolence. Could have killed him in his wrath. But he doesn't because he's a God of grace and mercy. In fact, he responds that he would actually act on the people's behalf. So, Look at Exodus chapter 6. This is where we're going to be the rest of the time. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. By the way, whose strong hand? Pharaoh's or God's? I think Pharaoh's strong hand was guided by God's strong hand. It's God's strong hand, ultimately. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, here, we're going to look at verses 6 through 8. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. I am who I am. I am Yahweh. Now you're going to see what I can do, God says. Oh, we've seen what Moses can do, fail. We've seen what Pharaoh can do, meh. Now it's God's turn, game on. And so the Lord again reaffirms with Moses, I am who I am. I am Yahweh. He says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saw that he is El Shaddai. He is the God Almighty. Now El Shaddai is not a name, it's a title, They knew God was powerful. They knew God was mighty. But they didn't know him fully by his name as Yahweh. We talked about this last week. Names indicate character. The name Stephen means crown. The name uh, uh, Joshua means deliverance. Yeshua, which is a derivation of of Joshua, is Jesus' name, means salvation. So names and character are synonymous And we see here the name of God, Yahweh, his character. In other words, same God, not a different God. The God of Moses is not different from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Same God. They knew his almighty power. They knew what he can do. But here, God reveals his name, his character, who he is. In fact, skipping ahead a little bit, Exodus 34, God expounds on his name. He proclaims his name before Moses, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious and merciful, compassionate, full of, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, slow to anger, forgiving sin, and yet just and righteous. He's declaring his name as he's declaring his character. Key word here is known. Everyone say yada. Come on now. This is a Hebrew word. I'm teaching you Hebrew. Here we go. Ready? Yada. There we go. You just learned some Hebrew. That's awesome. Yadah means to know, but it's not to be knowledgeable about, not to be aware of. It's more like to know by experience. I can know all about LeBron James. I can play like LeBron James. Just kidding. No, I'm not even close, but I don't know LeBron James. You can know all about Jesus and not know Jesus. It's knowing through experience. And the reality of the revelation of his name would be made tangible to his people at this point. They would know him personally through how he would rescue them. To put it this way, the attributes of God were going to be shown through the actions of God. God would act on behalf of his people. They would see his hand at work and they would go, oh, now I know what he's all about. God is reaffirming his covenant with his people, showing love and care and concern for them. And so we get to verses six through eight. God says, I am. I am who I am. I am the Lord. And he follows that up with seven I will statements I am, so I will. I will because I am. One of my favorite things to do in ministry, I, I delight in doing weddings. I love doing weddings. You know, in a wedding, you have the bride and groom, and they're so in love. No, schmoopy, schmoopy, right? And this sparkle in their eyes. And they should. That's good. And I hope and pray that that continues throughout their marriage. That's a good thing. I love weddings. And so I'll meet with a couple, an engaged couple, and we'll talk through the wedding ceremony. And I'll tell them, listen, a wedding ceremony is a biblical concept. First of all, Jesus in John chapter 2 went to a wedding, the wedding at Cana. That's where he turned water into wine. But also, God takes covenant commitments very seriously And covenant commitments throughout Scripture are ratified usually by a ceremony. What the Bible doesn't say is what has to be included in a wedding. So I'll tell a couple, you can do whatever you want. I mean, not whatever you want, within reason, but you can have whatever you want in the wedding. You're not going to find a verse. Thou shalt have thy unity candle. You know, the bride shall take the red sand, and the groom shall take the blue sand, and the two shall meet twine in the... No, you're not going to see any verses like that. So you could have any elements you want, but I, I'll tell them you have to have two things. You have to have the gospel because again, it's all about him, Jesus. Life is all about the gospel. Your marriage should be all about the gospel. In fact, Ephesians 5, marriage is a picture of the gospel. So you have to have the gospel. What do you think the second thing is? I want to hear some answers. Go ahead and shout it out. What do you, what's the, what do you have to have? Keep shouting out. Okay, I heard someone say bride. (laughs) Okay, touche. Yes, you have to have the bride and the groom. That's pretty important. I think I heard someone else say, did someone say vows? Vows. You can go without the music. You can go without the bridal gown. You can go without the wedding party. You can go without the mother in law. You can't go without the vows. You remove the vows from a wedding, it's no longer a wedding. That's what makes it a wedding. And so when the bride and groom are standing there, they're giving vows. They're saying, you know, for richer or poorer, for better or worse, I do. I will. Now the question is, how do you know? What is the guarantee of those promises? How does each spouse know that the other will strive for those? Notice I said strive for those because you'll never fulfill marriage vows perfectly. But how do you know that the bride and groom will strive for those? Well, you trust in each other's character. And God said in Numbers 23:19 God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Does he promise and not fulfill? When God promises something, he will fulfill it. There's not a shred of indecency in him, not a speck of iniquity, not a little bit of sin. He has no deceit in him, no dishonesty. He is the embodiment of truths. So when God says something, it will happen. When he promises, he will fulfill. I am, so I will. I will. I will because I am. God's promises are based on God's character. So we see here a sevenfold covenant promise to God's people with very pertinent application to us today as God's new covenant people. So I'm going to go through these quickly. Seven things, seven I will statements. I am the Lord. So, number one, I will bring you out from under burdens. The Israelites were under heavy oppression, burdened by oppressive taskmasters, whipping them, beating them, under immense pressure. And Perhaps you are here this morning and you feel immense pressure. You are under burden. You feel the weight. You are burdened by spiritual oppression or sin and shame and guilt or the pressures of life. Or expectations from others. And you feel the ever-increasing weight of life bearing down on you. And you're trying to shoulder it like Atlas trying to carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. And you are trying so hard, but your shoulders aren't broad enough. And you are being crushed. Because you know deep down you don't measure up. And you know what? You're right. You don't measure up. You think you have to earn your way to God. You think you have to earn people's approval, God's approval, and you are getting crushed by that burden. You know what Psalm fifty-five twenty-two says? Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Throw your burdens on him. He can take it. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened, who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me, give me your burdens, and I will give you my rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my what? Burden is light. Give me your burden, son. Give me, give me your oppression, your pressure, daughter. Give it to me. I can handle it. Your shoulders aren't big enough. Mine are. I can carry the cross with you. And so Jesus, on the cross, bears the full weight of the wrath of God, bears all our burdens, and he takes it upon himself because his yoke is easy so that our burden is light. Folks, listen, Jesus frees us from the burdens, most of all, of works-based righteousness. That's good news. Guess what? It gets better. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery. They were likely in chains, maybe shackled around their... Wrists and ankles, feeling the weight, enslaved and beaten by their cruel masters. You know how scripture des- describes sin? Sin is our master, and it is the cruelest of masters. We are enslaved to it. Sin doesn't care about you. Sin, sin doesn't care about your well-being. Sin actually seeks to destroy you. So when you're in sin's grasp, it feels like enslavement. And some of you are enslaved to pornography or lust or any kind of addiction. And you, you try to stop, you try to stop, and maybe for a few weeks you do, and then you go right back into it. And then you feel the guilt and the shame, and the chains get heavier. And the collar around your neck tightens, and the shackles around your ankles and your wrists get Tighter as well and you just feel the enslavement it feels like enslavement you can't get out on your own power you can't or maybe it's not lust maybe it's jealousy greed maybe it's anger and bitterness towards someone you just can't forgive them whatever the case may be sin is enslavement but you know what Romans 6 says about this oh this is so good Thanks be to God that though you who were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having now been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. You were slaves to sin. Now you become slaves to righteousness. You are servants of iniquity. Now you are servants of God. Come on, someone give me a hallelujah. I know they're hooting and hollering at Cedar Lake. Come on now. Jesus sets us free from slavery to sin. Praise God. It gets better. It's feel like an infomercial, but wait, there's more. <laughs> Number three, I will redeem you. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Those are the plagues. We'll talk about those in the next two weeks. Now, when you go to a museum, you see Egyptian art. So go to the Egyptian display. You'll see these antiquities, these uh, depictions of Egyptian art and you'll see a pharaoh usually with an eagle head or the head of a dog representing a god because they thought the pharaohs were gods and he's huge he's decked out in his, all his regalia his royal battle gear and he has his arms stretched out like this and he's pointing toward his enemies and he's directing his army his little minions his soldiers who are itty bitty who are little he's huge they're itty bitty now God knew this this is very strategic specific language because God is saying, "Oh, you think you have an outstretched arm? Watch my outstretched arm. I will redeem my people." Now the word redeem here, it's the Hebrew word ga'al. It's the same word used in the book of Ruth to mean kinsman redeemer. God is saying, "I'm your kinsman redeemer." This is a legal term, the kinsman redeemer, where a close relative would set out to restore, to recover, to buy back what the family had lost, to bring it back into the fold, to restore it to them, what belonged to the family. God is saying, I am your hero, I'm your kinsman redeemer, I'll redeem what was lost, what was broken, what was shattered, I'm going to redeem it, I'm going to bring it back into the fold. And so Ephesians 1, 7, it says, in him, in Jesus, we are redeemed. We have redemption through his blood. Jesus redeems us and purchases us by his blood. It gets even better. Number four, I will take you to be my people. Israel was God's chosen people. And by faith in Jesus, we are adopted and chosen by God and taken as his people. Now, I want you, listen, respond as you think you should respond to this. Cedar Lake, I'm looking at you. Here we go. And those online, come on, respond how you think you should respond to this verse. 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Come on, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Who's excited about that? Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Hallelujah, praise God, someone worship in this place. He is Yahweh. He is our covenant personal God. This isn't theoretical identity. It's relational identity. We know him personally. We are his. So through Jesus, we are adopted by God to be his people, which leads to number five, I will be your God. God is telling the Israelites, when I do these great signs and wonders in your midst, you'll know, you'll know it's me. You will know that I am the Lord, your God, your God. It'll be evidence Of my never-ending covenant love for you, you will know me. This is personal. You will know me. You will see. You will know that I am the Lord your God. In Titus 2, it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to, here it is again, redeem us, From all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Folks, through Jesus, he is our God. We know him personally. Number six, I will bring you into the land I promised to give my people. God had promised Abraham and his descendants a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of blessing where God would dwell with his people. Which leads to the last one, last promise, last I will. Number seven, I will give it to you for a possession. Not only would they live there, but the land would be theirs. So in a total undeserved gift of grace, God was giving them a promised possession. Now the promised land throughout the Old Testament allegorically represents eternal life. You realize that what we see now, the world system, the world that we live in now, this isn't the world we're going to live in forever. God's going to remake the world. We're going to live in a new heaven and a new earth. Nobody's excited about that. Come on now. We're going to live with Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth. And so the Bible is book-ended from garden to garden. Do you guys realize that? There's a garden in Genesis. There's a garden in Revelation. In the Garden of Eden, mankind walked with God, and they had dominion over God's creation. That was by God's design. And then we send And all creation was shattered and along comes Jesus and he saves and he restores and he redeems and by the end of Revelation God's people are back in the garden with him forever, walking with him in intimacy. So the entire Bible is one big story of redemption from cover to cover, garden to garden how God is restoring his people to his intended design, dwelling with him in his kingdom. We get to dwell with Jesus and rule and reign with him in his glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's good news. These are good promises, folks. And all these covenant promises are still true for us. They're true for us as God's people, but only through Jesus. And then God bookends again by saying, I am the Lord. I will because I am, and I am, so I will. And we get to verse 9. Moses, inspired by these beautiful promises of God, goes before the people, and the people repent, and they rejoice, and they trust in the goodness of God, right? Wrong. Their spirits are broken by harsh slavery. They take a, "Mm, I'll believe it when I see it approach. They're skeptical. Moses says, God, if the people don't believe you, how can I go before Pharaoh again? And God tells him, go. I'm going to be with you. Go. Go watch me. Watch what I do. I got this. I am who I am. We're going to look at that more next time, next couple weeks. But the main idea is this, folks. As God's holy covenant people, we know him and we are known by him. So when he promises, we can trust him.